Hello and welcome to CA Conversations. I'm joined today by Kristen Lowe and Andrew Weichs. We're going to be talking about living in desperate times. Kristen Lowe is a studio artist, filmmaker, and professor of art and art history at Gustavus Adolphus College. Her studio is located southwest of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Professor Andrew Weichs teaches at Hamlin University. His teaching career spans 36 years. Andrew is a landscape painter who moved to the United States from the UK in 1995. And without any further ado, I'll hand the conversation over to these two. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for uh, getting in touch with us. We're happy to be here. And um, we decided to call our talk in desperate times, which, which we only thought up at the very end of when we went through this earlier. I suppose we're both going to interject at different times and try and bring up some fresh material, stuff that we haven't necessarily thought of before. But, um, you know, when, when we're talking about this, we also might inter interrupt each other a few times because we can get a, on a, a, a roll. Well, and saying that, Chris and I have known each other for the last 20 years, I think, yes. since at least since I've been here in uh, Minnesota anyway. Yes. But I guess really um, our concern is as professors realizing the society we're in today, um, I would say especially the United States, is not in any position at all to help artists. Um, and that, that could be artists, composers, poets, painters, filmmakers. And what, what, what that in my mind means, or what we feel it means, is that Right now, you may look at the art community in different cities and think, well, this is an art community that's really being supported. What's being supported are the products that do come out of the art making process, but it's not, it isn't, this, it, it isn't all of the processes that are all of the products because there isn't really enough time given to artists to create anymore. We're sort of expected to just create a product that sells. We're kind of locked into commercialism. And I don't mean this on an, in a negative sense, but in the sense that we as a society have got certain parameters right now that we're kind of fitting everyone in in the United States. Well, I, well, I think just especially, and I keep mentioning the United States because I'm not from here and I'm from another country that does allow more freedom to people. I mean, for instance, here, you've got to have health insurance, you've got to work, and it really is robbing people. Um, um, also, paying for education here is just colossal. I mean, these are things that everyone knows, but it's becoming more and more acute and more apparent that people leaving college just have to go straight into a job, any job, to make money, pay back their loans, get their health insurance. And there doesn't seem to be any breathing space uh, for people to to uh, think about things, gestate ideas, and be creative. So education, in the educational context, we are trying to we're trying to address this issue on some level. In that study abroad programs are created and and different opportunities for so that when students are in school, and especially we in, in our case, we teach both of us teach at a liberal arts school. And so those liberal arts environments are, are pretty good at asking students, who are you, what matters to you, where are you going, and what are the implications of what you're going to do in the world with the greater sort of perennial questions of culture and, and of ethics and of humanity. 
Uh, so, I mean, it's not that we're saying, oh, you know, the world has got to end because art can't be made. It's just that if we are really truthful, right now we are in a country and in a time period where it is very difficult to um, be given the time to create and to not be on a kind of treadmill towards product, a product exclusively. And, and it's not always really been that way. I mean, you know, I mean, now that I'm in the later part of my career, I think way back in the very late 70s and 80s, back home in Britain, um, I, I think I was in a very particular place in the history of England. And I remember the composer Brian Eno talking about this, and, and I'm in complete agreement with the same generation that there was a time with mass unemployment um, but in a sense, because of the welfare system in Britain, people were able to take their time in figuring out what their career would be or finding a job. And with that national assistance, one could then have that time to figure out who you are as a person. And I think a great many artists came out of the 70s and 80s of Britain because of that period of time, which could have been up to three or four years. Yeah, and in the United States with Franklin Roosevelt, the Federal Art Project operated, you know, community art centers throughout the country where artists and craftspersons and um, people who were makers of some kind, tailors, um, they all found a way to find work until they had enough work to make a more, um, a, a bigger and better living. I mean, you can think of someone like Jackson Pollock. He was a part of that Federal Art Project. And Jackson Pollock's estate now is worth well over a billion dollars. And he was a part of that federal art project. And his work would not have been able to um, have expanded or developed the way it was if it wasn't for Franklin Roosevelt in the United States post-World War II. I also think, um, I was talking to Chris earlier about the students and how they have changed, uh, at least over my career of teaching over 30 years. And the students today, um, have a lot going for them, but they also have a lot of handicaps being thrust at them, um, particularly with this um, epidemic of looking at screens constantly. Um, in a sense, what it's doing is, is students are not in reality anymore. They, they're looking at self-reference all the time. They're in a vacuum. And I think the subject of history and in particular the subject of art history is kind of getting pushed aside as irrelevant when more and more it's completely relevant that we understand history in order to go forward. So I think students are, are lacking a lot of this basic knowledge that again as professors in a liberal arts college I think it, we're able to give them that um, yes. more than perhaps going to just doing one subject and leaving. You know, something more like a, um, you know, like a institutional program that was just a, just for skills only. Um, you know, when students come to us, they, I mean, what, what Andrew is saying I would add to is that they come with us, come to us with nothing. And this, this sort of vacuum or flat world is really a consumer world. It's just, it's taking everything in, but it's not creating really anything. It's also not, and I hate to use jargon, it's not an experiential learning situation where they're in an environment, they're in a mental conceptual environment. So bringing them into, um, like say, working outdoors, working uh, abroad, 
Um, working where there's some kind of uncomfortable experience that actually brings about more good, you know, because we're all kind of moving forward saying, let's push this a little bit farther. It may feel uncomfortable, but, you you know, I think that that uncomfortable um, environment also produces something really good. Well, it, I mean, just as an example, I realize that students coming into the painting studio at Hamlin, where I teach, um, they're uncomfortable about being exposed 18 of them in a room where they have to stand up in front of this metal object called an easel and they, they cannot sit down. I'm not allowing them to put on their headphones and disappear into their screens. And, and they're really quite uncomfortable um, because they've told me that, not immediately, but usually when they're more familiar with me and the environment, they, they often say, oh, I was so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to stand, how to stand. And I just think, my God, it's... These are so fundamental. You know, and it's not just me. I remember students years back weren't like that. It was, they just weren't. And um, there's a time, space issue problem going on. Time, space, that's, yeah, that summarizes it. And in my, I mostly teach, I mean, I teach kind of cross, um, I teach FDS first term seminars. So that's a writing across the curriculum program. But I also teach senior seminar, which is all materials, any materials, and then all levels of drawing. But in the drawing studio, to go back to what Andrew said in his painting studio, I mean, what is shocking to me is just how incredibly uncomfortable it is to sustain looking at something and pose those questions about space. You know, how to understand space. You do not learn how to understand space when you're looking at your phone. Um, And it's not that we're really hard on students or anything by saying, you know, you can't be on your phone, but even talking to students about how they cannot use photographic references makes them go into a panic often. Because that, and I say that you need to understand this is 2D space to 2D space. And the ultimate irony of drawing is that you learn to see three-dimensional space in a two-dimensional way so that you can create three-dimensional illusion on a two-dimensional surface. You know, so that, you know, you can you can really learn what is that space translation about? And that, I mean, and of course that all sounds, I mean, perhaps to people who don't do this very formal <laughs> and then you think, well, so what? But then... But that's the language of art. But that is the language of art. And as, as we both have done, and I'm sure many listeners may have done who are in this profession, have gone around other institutes and, and see what other art professors are doing. And sometimes it, it's wonderful that on the whole, I'm not seeing a lot of good stuff happening. I'm seeing drawing and painting where students are in a world of their own on the headphones. They are looking at a photograph and it seems to me like an exercise in busy work or something for a whole semester. The flip side to that though, is you also get, um, there are, how do I put this, people who come with their own agenda, political or, um, uh, when I say political, I mean sort of narrowly focused political issues that they hang onto our peg, the peg being art, and we seem to take all these other issues on, and you've sort of washed away the whole point of what we're doing. Right. And it's not that, I mean, all art making is creative energy, which is good. But I I mean, to add again to what Andrew's saying is I think that in terms of what what is art good for, what does art do in this greater aspirational way, something bigger than ourselves, 
something maybe much deeper into our inner life, which is then very directly related to the people in our outer life, um, that it's, it's um, the questions, uh, the, the sort of lateral thinking between disciplines in the contemporary art became very, very easy to consider because good artists are always thinking laterally and, yeah. and yeah. that we think across disciplines very easily, especially post-World War II, you know, I, I try to, I try to, I, I sometimes try to remind students, you know, if we were in an atelier, that would mean we would be working on one drawing for 15 weeks until that drawing looked just like every other drawing, basically. Right, right. And so that's a very, that's a very strictly formal model. But what we're trying to do is to try and use the language of the visual arts in order to understand our own individual way of seeing the world more clearly with more of an artistic vision, something that is not, not driven by formal things. The formal things only support the expressive intent. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. And we've both in, been in situations where um, we've been you know, relating with, say, chemistry students or mm -hmm. biology students biology as well. Students. I, mean, we, I mean, I have taught cross-curricular <clears throat> courses with the biologists at Hamlin. And for several years, we would start off going to Arizona, and then we landed up in rural Jamaica, where we would take 15 students who were both or either art majors or bio majors, um, and try and make connections between art and biology, not where art is serving biology as illustrations, not that at all. It's trying to help students form a hypothesis from the landscape of Jamaica by looking at it aesthetically or looking at it more um, scientifically and coming up with a individual hypothesis. So really that's what a liberal arts education does and it, and it helps students to break out of the box and to make better choices that we think they will do in their career afterwards. Yes, that they, we hope that this kind of critical thinking that we're really talking about is also going to translate into how they form, how they make a life for themselves. I mean, I've gone into the chemistry lab at Gustavus and worked on a project called the Mobius Project, which is a continuous one-sided surface formed by twisting one end of the rectangular strip through 180 a, you know, a sort of long, longitudinal, <laughs> I say that three times, axis, and, you know, so they're connected to each other. Um, one thing that the chemistry professor, Scott Burr, said when we were done is he said he, he couldn't believe how much the looking that we were doing to try and capture on the page what we saw was identical to the looking that his students do in the chemistry lab to try and understand how something, how, how maybe molecules work in the world. I mean, in the natural world, as he felt was almost identical. Well, I mean, and also it's, um, you know, what we're doing, I mean, at least uh, what I believe is, is that painting, drawing, it's synonymous with, with seeing, with learning to see. And um, I think that's what all professors are doing in all subjects, you know, I mean, same in chemistry, it's learning to see the facts and not let filters <clears throat> of prejudice get in the way. Mm -hmm. So it's we're teaching an abstraction that is a basis or a foundation for lots of subjects. But, but what we have to try and do is deconstruct a lot of ideas and assumptions that students have, we all have, but students, particularly here, seem to come with not a great deal um, aesthetic education in the high schools. 
And we're really starting either from scratch or deconstructing this idea that art is a commodity to hang over the couch of your grandmother's living room. Well, and it's not, and, 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 and we, we definitely are trying to deconstruct what, what is a very watered down, often a watered down on a, a lack of experience with breadth and depth of different kinds of art from cross cultures, from cross centuries, that these things have not usually been something that students have had much exposure to. And it's, uh, Andrew, in that comment, is not at all saying that uh, something above the couch is a bad thing because that person can go to that, it's just is a bad art. If it's not a bad painting, it's not a bad thing. But it's if just seen as decoration, isn't it? You know, I mean, it works with the carpet and the curtains, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when you get to that level, you really don't need a degree in the subject. Right, but, but the, you know, the work that we keep coming back to that, that individuals remember for all of their life, it, it is contextual for sure, but that if someone comes back to a work of art and they review it every day, the work itself never change, never changes. All the work that we make, it does not change over time. We change around it. And that's so it, it provides this moment of time for us to reflect on how we have changed around this non-changing thing. And then in my case, um, I also teach a class called the Day Course, which is a multimedia conceptual art idea development course, which I know is like so painting and drawing. I've, I come out of such a, a strong drawing tradition but it is a course in which students pick a day, like say the day of sustainability or the day of loss. You know, so sustainability and loss are very connected. And that project is, what does that mean to them? What does that mean to them? Now they could go and, and, and go to a rainforest, which wouldn't be in, you know, next door to Gustavus, but let's say they went to the Arboretum and they could start a painting that is talking and speaking to them about what does loss mean? Or they could have an installation piece or a video piece. So their, their, their material choice is wide open in this course. And that it allows them to, to ask questions about identity, which is a big topic right now in education, but also about you know, uh, global thinking. Well, how, how are they gonna, what are they gonna bring back into the world once they leave campus? You know, what matters to them? What's important to them? Um, and, and what materials are saying it the best? You know, so something may not be, you know, something may not be as clear in its voice through painting. It might be a, something better said in drawing. It might be better said in installation. It might be better said in a performance piece that's like a performance piece away from the proscenium stage. Well, I, you're right. I'm... You know, what about, what about installation? I know, I know, I'm trying, I know, I'm trying to So I up. once worked for, I'm not, not going to say who, and in fact that president has died, um, but I once worked for a president at an art school that said to me at a lunch one day, he said, performance art? He said, that's something you do when you're drunk at a birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> well, after, okay, now segueing into that, and thank you, Chris. So, so here's the thing, when I was in college, so when I first did my foundation in 19... All right, way back in the 70s, I was I wanted to paint a landscape oh, because that's what I've always wanted to do. But I was told landscape painting is dead. You don't want to do that anymore. So I was in that kind of atmosphere to try and fight it. And I thought, how can landscape painting be dead? What is dead 
are people's depictions of landscapes. <laughs> exactly. That's what's dead. You know, I mean, well, no, it is in, in nature fact, never yes, dies. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. it's always going to give and give and give. And there's there is a um, what's the word? People are moving away from nature big time. You know, and back to back to the screens again, I guess. But nature never ends. It's always constantly a focus. It's always got something there for artists. And there's been a huge move from it where I, I think um, it's one of these issues that I keep thinking about is, again, in America or in the West, there's, there's a move towards uh, market forces, capitalism, and not that freedom of thought. There's huge propaganda here. I think in the arts, certainly in politics, as we know, but it's subtly putting people into a box, mm -hmm. and and that's a very dangerous sort of ideology. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, 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 in terms of propaganda. There's just it's fractioned into a lot of. We know this politically. I mean, we're seeing this all over right now, and we're also seeing. You know, Britain is seeing it. You know, with everything going on there. Um, that you know, these camps, these sort of battling camps, because there's this wrong or right kind of positioning, when when really, it, if, it, if it really, if you boil it down, what is it that we are all looking for going forward together? You know, what, rather than, you know, I'm right, my idea, you know, this ideological sort of battle between between things, political things, especially. But, um, but it also but, seems that people aren't really saying much. They're, they're all slight variations on the same thing, but avoiding some of the main issues. I, I, I see that in colleges with art quite a bit. They're, they're just talking about political correctness all the time. But the, there's some main issues out there that don't really get talked about. And this is linked to, I remember asking Andrew, and I'm, I'm wondering if listeners would be thinking the same thing. So this idea, well, if the painting above the couch or what, what is good art? What is good art? Well, An Andrew, I asked this um, to Andrew when I made a documentary film that it, what highlighted him as one of the four artists that were working from the landscape for most of their adult life, if not all of their adult life. And w w what makes good art, I said to Andrew, and he said, art that is timeless. Yeah, yeah, right. Timeless, something yeah. that is timeless. You know, you know, you'd think about the music in our lives that is timeless, it doesn't matter what century you know, the, at that moment, what was going on? Yes, it's interesting to hear that backstory. But why does something that Bach wrote uh, yes, resonate keep, with keep us now? Why does it keep resonating with us? Why does a particular painting that hasn't changed, our culture has changed around it? Again, to go back mm -hmm. to this static image that hasn't changed. Or really, even if you think about this song, it's not a static song because it's a song, but it hasn't changed. Yes, there's been many people performing Bach's second suite in B minor or something, but it hasn't changed over time. Why is it still so? How how? Why is it still so relevant? To and us? that's the same, obviously, in painting. And and, and this is the, the question about what is that? This stuff. You know, what is that? So I really would like to say I'd like to pose this because Andrew and I didn't talk about this earlier, but I'd like to pose this idea right now that in the colleges right now, we, we are always talking about student learning outcomes. Okay, so if we're asking the question, what is good art? And we cannot actually boil it down to a recipe 
because we it has got to be what is timeless through centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, what is really going to last through centuries and be relevant and meaningful to people a, a, a thousand years from now is really not it. You cannot boil that down to a, a, a recipe of some kind. But what you can do, and I think this is really, I think this, I feel like this is important, is this question of nature and nurture. You know, if say a student is inclined um, towards the arts, towards the humanities, well, if they're born with inclinations, that's one thing, but if they're not put in a position where they are with faculty that have their own scholarship that they develop mm-hmm. and they are passionately involved the way yeah. I'll just yeah. say, yeah. I'm not going to say yeah. me, I'll say Andrew, um, passionately involved in what they do in their own work and that questioning and that looking and that continual question is, is this good? Why is this good? Is Can it be better? Is, is something that when students see, they go beyond themselves and they, mm-hmm. they go beyond to something much more aspirational that is not um, just something they were born with as inclinations. There's a, a trust thing there. Yeah, I think, and if I think they're the not in that environment. And they see it consistent with the instructor. They build up a trust. Um, it's like you're giving them permission to venture into this subject. But without that, they're not going to do it. So you've got to have an enthusiastic, knowledgeable, um, outstanding artist as well as a good communicator. And that's a pretty rare thing more and more these days because so many other things are being put on top of that instructor. Yeah. You know, the political correctness in the classroom is such a big thing. It's huge for somebody like me late in my career. I have to watch every P and Q of what I'm saying. And I'm not saying it's bad, but that's a hell of a pressure. And, and, and all this quantifying that has to be the quantifying, done yeah. is really difficult. For instance, art, the nature of the territory, you're not going to get huge amounts of majors. It, it doesn't happen. It's like music, you're not going to get huge amounts of students wanting to major in the oboe. It can't happen. The sciences, of course, are going to get more. But we have to quantify our numbers. And if the numbers aren't in the 30s or 20s, and they never are, then we get cut back and come back. And this is administrators who come from the teaching profession who you think would know better. So that's my other kind of, it's not a gripe. I can bet most listeners are nodding and agreeing with (laughs) Well, Well, but what it really, it really, so in those, to, to summarize that, what we just sort of, what we just sort of went on a tangent about is that those students, they do not ask for SLOs that are one, confidence and to trust. We do not have an SLO that says the student learning outcome is going to be that this student leaves my class with a lot more confidence Mm -hmm. and a lot more trust in what their engagement with other people is like. You know, what about teaching people to work on teams? Now, the sciences are a little bit better at that, I think. And I think theater and arts and dance and music can be good at that as well. Um, but I think that in the visual arts, when it, especially if we're talking about the easel arts, you know, if we're talking about painting and drawing and things that, where there's a lot of isolation and there's artists that are alone a lot, um, that they need to have a kind of confidence and a kind of trust in a community and a stability in that community that values these things that they're trying to do, that they're um, committing to and saying no to X, Y, and Z I, in my senior seminar class last year, 
had all but one of the students was a double major. And of course, that's great, of course, because then, I mean, at first I thought, you know, when I came from an art school that, oh, there must be something wrong with that because they've got to go full force with it. But really what I'm starting to think about, now I don't have this as an answer, is, is it not a better um, integration of the fine arts into other ways of thinking that also will benefit um, a society, perhaps, that this kind of looking and questioning, just like the sciences, is valuable. And it's not necessarily right for everyone to do 100%. Um, well, you know, it's interesting you said um, the idea of being alone, which I think some people get confused and they think it's loneliness. It's not. Being alone is not loneliness. Um, and I think to be on one's own, which I do a lot and I really enjoy, but I also enjoy the company of people, but I've got to have a balance. And I just think that balance is way out of kilter. It's, I mean, I have, uh, well, my daughters are no longer teenagers now, but you know, I, I know what it's like to have teenagers who can never be alone. They're on the screen constantly. As I have one of those myself. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> it's just this sort of illusional fabricated world going on. and and it, to me, that is pretty desperate. And but you... going back to desperate, I mean, yeah, it was desperate when I was growing up. You know, we, we lived under Margaret Thatcher. You know, I mean, it was pretty <laughs> bloody desperate, really. Well, and who are we living under right now you in know. the United States? Well, it, it's worse. <laughs> it is actually worse now, obviously. Yeah, it's us, worse now. But, but, but that desperation, so... It doesn't mean to say, you know, it's bad. I mean, I, mean, I guess what I was trying to say is, like, Growing up in the 70s, yes, there was unemployment. Yes, we had money, you know, national assistance. But 30 art schools were closed in a year under Thatcher. You know, that was pretty desperate. It was desperate in the sense we didn't even have heat in our studios because mm -hmm. the university wasn't going to give us that. It, you know, she was systematically getting rid of anything to do with the arts. And we might want to look at that if we're, as we're thinking about that in America. You know, again, it comes back to what are what do we need to do to support? So just taking off again from an earlier comment is, you know, what this idea of being in front of the screen, but what happens when someone is alone on their own in an environment, in a landscape, with animals in the landscape, with things happening in the landscape, and they are there in a very, that's a very powerful experience you know people sometimes say oh i'm going to go off to the country to have a peaceful thing but when you're you know when you're thinking of, i mean if you work uh, right on location you i mean i was just doing that this summer and I, I know andrew was as well you're thinking about thunderstorms you're thinking about you know, all of a sudden your things are being blown away you know and, and this this experience in the landscape is about as dramatic as you can get. Well, you <laughs> I mean, showed that in your film. That was like the theme yeah. of, of your film. One of the difficulties sure. of, of artists who work outside. You know, and this this isolation that is not loneliness. It's um, it is a kind of desperation to get closer to what it is that we are searching for as human beings. What is it that we want to connect with that's larger than ourselves? That's larger, that's, one could say, goes much deeper into our inner life, but that inner life and what's larger than ourselves is connected to everyone around now, us. Now, here's a question for you, though, Chris. I, were you aware of that when you were the age of our students? You know, no, you because know, like you, Andrew, I was in an environment at that time where there were so many battling voices. This was the 80s. This was the middle 80s, late 80s. 
There were so many battling voices in um, post-World War II contemporary art. It was, no, you can't make art that goes into a gallery. You have oh, to yes, do something right, like performance right, art. Right. No, you can't do performance art because that's just a bunch of BS and that's just a passing fad. So you were, as a student, you were bounced back and forth between these ideologies. And but on a deeper level, did you ever, on, on your quieter moments, ever think the bigger picture? I mean, do, do you know what I mean? I mean, was your intuition having a loud enough voice to say, I need to follow my own pursuit? Well, that is a really, you know, that's a really interesting question because I did filmmaking and I did studio art. And then I left filmmaking because in desperate times, <laughs> I had so many school loans that <laughs> I couldn't go into was. filmmaking because yeah. at the yeah. time in the eight, late 80s, it was so expensive. It still is so expensive. But that at that time, I, I went to, I was showing in studios and galleries across the United States, East Coast, Midwest and West Coast. And to think of adding filmmaking costs onto my student loan debt but then, what, 25 years later, I got to return back to filmmaking, and it actually pulled in another kind of process that was more, I think, direct advocacy mm -hmm. that my documentary films try to do in terms of creating portraits of artists like Andrew and others to, um, to advocate for this life, for advocating for this profession, um, and people say, well, why did you make a film on four artists when you're an artist? Well, because why not? Because I want everyone to know what's important about this life, about the, you know, the time that they spend doing this. I think, and then going kind of back to the teaching aspect, I think one of the difficulties that is popping up more and more is, is the fact the diversity of students um, that we're having are not just um, how do we say this, white Americans now, we're having Wait, students, right, we're having students, you know, from all over the world who, who come with very different um, aesthetic backgrounds, perhaps, and that is another whole challenge to teaching. So I asked myself, should I really be teaching drawing the way I know drawing to be? Is my idea of drawing narrow? Or is it a universal language? And these are the things yeah. I ask. Mm -hmm. But you know, the truth is at the end of the day, I, I say to myself, no, what I am teaching is a universal language. You know, just like mm -hmm. you mentioned about Bach, you know. Yeah. Um, I think Bach can probably be played to most cultures and there's something there that is giving mm -hmm. most. I'm, I won't say every because I'm not that knowledgeable. <laughs> but, um, and I know we're getting to the end of our talk, but uh, you know, in terms of this diversity, you know, even thinking about space, just take the concept of space. Right. When I talk right. to students in a general yeah. ed class, my drawing class, and we talk about linear perspective from the Western perspective, yeah. linear perspective from the West is very uh, military-like, and it's and it's it, it's uh, how it was even defined. Right. The avant-garde, the front line. And then you compare it to Asian perspective, which is a much more fishbowl-like perspective. And you, you know, just even talking to students about the difference between Asian perspective and Western perspective, you can start to address how we see something as universal as space. Oh, and it's like how, how to read a painting. Like, I mean, the, we tend to read a, an image, be it a rectangle or a square, or maybe a circle, or, or maybe not even that at all. 
but um, a Japanese scroll is um, slowly unraveled as if you were traveling through the landscape. So you're moving as you unscroll this long ink drawing. So there's another way of perspective, the moving image that keeps continuing. Yeah. But the thing is, all of these things still come back to this timeless notion of, um, of, of, of yourself within a world that is regimented. Um, and I suppose, again, the theme of desperate times is I think we've moved away from that quite a bit. Well, or that we at least need to think about how we are looking at time in terms of creativity and um, bigger than ourselves kind of vision. That sounds like a great place to jump in and say thank you both.